Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Rika. You know, last week I started off, I, I think I said a little later in the episode that that was like a, a YOLO episode, right? Kind of, you know, Howard Beale, you know, screaming out the window. And I did the introduction, uh, the, the, the lead-in monologue about the federal judiciary, that they've let us down. And as you may know, just uh, this week... We finally got that decision from the D.C. Circuit about Donald Trump's claim of absolute post-presidential immunity. And they said, as, as we expected, and we expected this as the final result, how exactly we would get there was a little unclear, as expected that no, you do not have immunity once you're no longer president. And there's some additional details to how that decision came down. There's a lot. The decision they rendered was not only right on the merits, right on the final outcome, which I don't think that was never really in doubt. It was also a very lengthy and detailed decision. And you've even seen a number of lawyers saying, you know, it's like a historic decision, not just because it addresses an issue that frankly, no one to this point was absurd enough to think needed to be addressed. But as long as we're living in the Trump era, as long it's good to get it out of the way, right? Our ex-president's permanently uh, immune. But in any case, it's it. a lot of people have said, wow, this is a really, really good decision. Kind of brings in all the language stuff, all the history stuff, you know, name checks repeatedly 
the conservative members of the Supreme Court who might be inclined to say otherwise. And so there has been at least a certain backdraft of, well, maybe we were a little, a little premature in saying they were taking too long. Right. Maybe we got ahead of ourselves in saying it took them too long because for one thing, this decision is pretty is pretty detailed and long. And maybe, you know, maybe it just took this long to write it. Maybe. Maybe. And and let me say one other thing that we didn't know when uh, Kate and I uh, talked to you last week, it was what the breakdown of the votes would be because there's two Biden appointees on this three judge panel and one President Bush appointee, the first President Bush. And that Bush appointee had raised some questions earlier about do we need to expedite this? You know, what's the maybe what's the hurry? So some signs that that judge might be a problem. As it ended up, they all signed on to the same decision, which is if nothing else, kind of good for the country, right? It's not only the the controlling decision, but it's a unanimous decision. Okay. So again, there's some question about, well, maybe we got ahead of ourselves. I don't think so. And here's why. What I was discussing and many others have have argued, you know, sort of successively in in, in recent years, is not based on this one situation, this one decision, this one period of a few weeks to come back with a decision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of everything combined. And I think the best way to see this is that there was a tendency, and it's a tendency to that to a significant extent I was part of. Not that, you know, I'm not a lawyer, not that my opinion really matters, but I just say this that, you know, I, I kind of bought into to a certain extent. And that is that, you know, these are the serious judges. Let's. It takes time. Let's not. You know. Let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not assume the worst. When you take together everything that has happened over the last seven years, especially the last four years, we have every right to assume the worst. Or to put it a different way, the federal judiciary taken together has really surrendered any presumption in their favor. That they've got it covered, that they've you know they've got fish to fry that we may not even know about. So like you know let's let's be patient. Let's let's they're the judges. They're wearing the robes. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think they deserve a benefit of the doubt because I still think that is the case. That the federal judiciary in total really has let us down. And when I say us, I mean the entire country down because. Justice delayed is justice denied. In this particular case, it seems like they were at least not twiddling their thumbs. And it seems like it was not the case that this one judge was, you know, trying to play games. I suspect, given that the one Bush judge may have, you know, not seen entirely eye to eye with the other two judges, it's quite possible that in addition to the length of time that it took just, you know, to put this decision together, because it was lengthy, it is very detailed, you know, brings together a lot of information, there probably was a decent amount of time, not just writing it, but making sure, you know, they clearly, they they almost certainly came at this like, 
we all basically agree let's let's write one opinion let's not have any dissents and that probably took some time so my point here is that the length of time which i believe was about 3 weeks that it took to issue this decision may have been taken doing things that were with the best of intentions and may even have a positive result but I do think that the overall verdict about the federal judiciary very much still stands. And, you know, this isn't about being right or wrong about any particular judicial process. What I think is relevant and remains relevant now is we shouldn't assume the best. We shouldn't assume that every delay and odd decision is you know there's a there's there's a there's a reason we don't know about yet but we'll you know the the kind of thing that the kind of thing that we hope kids are able to assume about their parents right the kind of things that believers believe about god right we don't know we can't know the reasons but we're going to trust that that it's all according to a plan that has the best you know that will come out the best in the end. We shouldn't think that way about the federal judiciary. And frankly, maybe it's it's just silly and naive. Well, it's certainly silly and naive that every, anybody would think about it like God, right? <laughs> or or maybe about parents, but even in the more general sense that um, given that we are not privy to all the details about what goes into the judicial process, uh, the conferences where the judge hash the judges hash out what they're going to do. They have let us down at a very basic level, and uh, wasn't maybe as bad as quite we thought this time. But we're gonna Kate and I are gonna dig into that more in a moment because there's a lot still to discuss about about this decision, about what comes next, and so on and so forth. But I wanted to put that in front of you because, and I, I hope it doesn't sound like uh, you know kind of justifying after the fact because you know whether I'm right or wrong about a particular thing really doesn't matter. But I think it does matter that we have this, you know, view, a kind of, you know, chastened in some ways, and perhaps somewhat more skeptical and even cynical view of the federal courts than a lot of us, even in an era where we know that the federal courts are pretty stacked with 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 right-wingers, uh, uh, different than many of us have sort of been acculturated to adopt. So uh, with all that, Kate, why don't you bring us back to the world of facts and real things and, and off this sort of airy-fairy pontificating. What do we make of this decision? So as soon as we got the decision, you know, the first place that I looked was the judge split, right? And seeing that it was a per curiam decision, you know, which means nobody kind of takes credit for writing it. It's fully a joint project of all three judges. That was striking. And that, even that kind of raised my hackles a little bit because this is the kind of case where it totally makes sense that the judges want to write as one. You know, it's what we're dealing with this total, you know, lack of precedent, this case is going to be foundational for presidential, uh, you know, immunity and, and kind of criminal cases going forward. They know that there's a good chance the Supreme Court will take it up next. So it, it totally makes sense that if possible, this is a case where they were going to take pains not to have splits. Now, that being said, and given Henderson's presence, that kind of 
immediately made me wonder, is this going to be a little bit watered down? You know, is this going to maybe avoid kind of speaking directly to Trump, trying to speak more in generalities and, and stay away from what might be, you know, kind of against that one judge's political alignment? And that's just not the case. I mean, I think the argument uh, I, I think the ruling is really strong in general. I think it does a really good job kind of taking up each pillar of Trump's argument and, you know, treating it with a kind of thorough discussion and, and kind of investigation and then and pretty summarily kind of knocking them all down. But what was striking to me, too, is the judges kind of disgust with Trump's behavior very clearly came through. You know, at one point, They said that, you know, if the charges in the indictment against Trump are proven, that would be a, quote, unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. You know, they they get kind of palpably angry when they're talking about how the biggest responsibility that officers of this country have to its people are protecting the sanctity of the vote. And that's exactly what he didn't do here. Right. If, If these charges are proven. So I thought the argument was tight and comprehensive and kind of well-written and didn't shave off the edges in terms of how serious the charges against Trump are in this case. And, and you know, they and they didn't keep everything in the land of abstraction. You know, they, they dealt with kind of the realities of the charges and the indictment. So, you know, I think I also don't like that we had to wait three or four weeks to get it. I mean, I think that's going to have, you know, kind of inevitable knock on effects. But I thought the argument was great. And I think they did some kind of um, little bit of magic with the timing that is going to make life more difficult for Trump, which does indicate a continued awareness by by this group that he is going to try to delay at every turn. And kind of the biggest place where that's present is The top line of the timing piece is he has until February 12th to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court. And if he does that, which is like Monday, right? Is that, am I right? Is that Monday or around Monday? Right. Give or take. It's like, it's like five days days. from now. Yeah. If he does that, um, automatically the case is kind of frozen until the Supreme Court, um, you know, decides whether to, to give him a stay during the called the cert consideration where they kind of decide to take it up or not. But the interesting piece is the step that everyone kind of thought he would probably take after the panel comes out against him is apply for the whole DC circuit to rehear the case on bonk. Just because, you know, it's kind of an intermediary step you could take. You could probably eat away some more weeks with, you know, while they kind of consider the petition. And then they're pretty likely to reject it just because an en banc rehearing is rare in general. Usually it's like pretty embarrassing for the panel of judges that decided the ruling in the first place, because you usually get only get a rehearing if the rest of the circuit is like, okay, this is wildly wrong. You know, we need to correct this before it goes any further, which is unlikely, you know, even given the kind of political sway of the DC circuit. But here they said explicitly, okay, you go ahead. You can apply for rehearing from the full circuit if you want. But in the meantime, this case is going to keep rocking and rolling back at the district court. And the only way that that will stop in its tracks is if the D.C. circuit, the whole thing does grant the rehearing. So 
And that's a little unusual. Like in normal cases, if Trump applied for the rehearing, that would probably be enough to kind of freeze the the case in place until they decided. But here the judges are like, nope, that's not enough. Like you need to win with that application in order to pause it. And that puts Trump in a little bit of a bind because he can try to do the en banc rehearing his chances of success are pretty low. And then he runs the risk of doing that, having them reject him. And then all of a sudden, oh no, February 12th has come and gone. This case is rolling again. Um, you know, And then he has to apply to the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, we know that Judge Chuckin at the district level is like chomping at the bit to get this going. So you know, they, they also kind of cherry on top add a little bit of a you know, pigeonholed him a little bit in terms of kind of timing and how he can next, you know, bite off a chunk of delay here. And so is is the point being there that going the en banc path, that's not going to help him. So it may make more sense to let's just go straight to the Supreme Court, because if anybody's going to throw me a Hail Mary pass, it's it's the Supreme Court. So they kind of they they set up a situation where even though he is not prevented from making the en banc attempt, that he's going to not do it on his own just because they've kind of created a structure where he needs to, it's in his interest not to do that because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to kind of have it hanging there while the trial's back in session, basically, and, and moving ahead. Exactly. So basically, they just kind of took away the incentive for him to have this intermediary delay step between now and the Supreme Court. So I would be surprised if he didn't go right to the Supreme Court at this point. And you know what? Like, I can see a world where the Supreme Court doesn't take this up. I mean, it kind of, it'll be portrayed as a blow against Trump for sure. And that is a political consideration. But the D.C. Circuit's argument is so good and so kind of rock solid that for them to take up the case, relitigate it, undo what the district or what the DC circuit found here would be, I mean, pretty extreme. And obviously we've seen extreme things from this court before, but it would probably have to entail them kind of redoing some district level stuff, which they're not really supposed to do. You know, it it does seem in some ways that the easiest path for them to kind of keep their hands clean of this question that I think we all know they don't really want to deal with would be to be, you know, we don't see any clear error in what the DC circuit did, right? That's the standard. So we're going to stay out of this for now, kick it back to the district court and kind of get things rolling again, but we'll see. So, and, and just to unpack that a little, the idea there would be, they can say, all right, we looked at it. We don't see any problem. Let's move ahead. We are not precluding ourselves from coming back after the trial's over and kind of looking at it with a fuller set of facts so that they wouldn't be decisively shutting the door. But given that what we assume is that everybody knows that Trump is never going to win this, he's trying to delay the trial, that that would in effect shut shut all the doors that he really cares about. Is that basically right? Exactly. I mean, for us to remember, this is the January 6th case, right? This presidential immunity question is just a tangent, essentially. So even if the Supreme Court kind of says, 
they would have to say, we're not giving you this get out of jail card for free right now. You know, like we're not going to go trial card. Basis, right. In a, in we're not going to go yeah, to yeah. that extent of helping him, which everyone pretty much agrees would be an insane extent, because as we kind of discussed last episode, the arguments here are so ridiculous. But exactly. I mean, we are still this case is still at the district court. It's barely moved at all. There's so much further for it to go. And there'll be plenty of opportunity for the Supreme Court to kind of get involved and put their thumb on the scale for Trump and get to do so probably through an entryway that's a little less just brazenly silly as as the immunity piece. Now, am I right that the internal process for the Supreme Court deciding to review this is that they need four justices to, to say, we want to we want to buy to this, right? That, that that's the they don't need a majority. Right. But they need five for a stay, which is what Trump really needs. Okay. So that's, that's, that's obviously very key. Yeah. Um, that, that difference, because I, I, I know we're sort of a listeners. I know we're sort of a broken record here. It, it is always important to keep in mind here. No one really thinks that any court, even this Supreme Court is going to say, yeah, uh, ex-presidents, you are immune forever, no matter what you did. That's not going to happen. This is all about getting this past the presidential election, in which case, if Trump wins, the whole thing goes away. So it's it's important to keep that uh, keep that in mind. So the stay is really, in many ways, more important than the taking it up at all. Now, let's go back to one point that we alluded to a few episodes ago and goes to, you know, a potentially a more generous view of the decision making by the DC court and possibly by uh, the Supreme Court itself that when the, let's let's go all the way back that originally we got into this whole thing because Jack Smith said kind of did a a power play and said forget all this inferior court stuff I'm going straight to the Supreme Court let's you know it's you and me Supreme Court let's do this right and the Supreme Court basically said no 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 it's it's that's it's all good. Let's let's stay on the the standard the, the standard practice. And many people understandably said, you know, more game playing, more helping Trump do this thing of finding all of these little ins and outs uh, to delay it. But what Kate and I pointed out, the the sort of the one thing that didn't quite fit there was that the three Democratic appointees on the Supreme Court didn't say anything. And if they if if this really was the court saying, okay, Trump, you got it. Let's slow roll this thing to death. You would think that one of them would have said, and it's entirely within their power to um, publicly dissent from the decision, that they would have put out I don't know if it's technically called a decision because it's not, you know, they're not deciding a case, put out a a statement saying this fucked up. You know, this was the this was the wrong decision. And I think uh Kate and I both were of the opinion that they wouldn't have tacitly gone along with this if they didn't have some understanding that this was part of a reasonable approach to this case. And the reasonable approach to the case would be, no, let's not jump ahead. Let's have the the ordinary order of events happen here. Let's have this briefed, 
have have arguments before the DC circuit. They're going to kind of put it all together. And then we, assuming it is a, a decision we all agree with, not just in the final analysis, you know, not just on the big question, but how it's argued, then we can look at it and say, looks good to us. Our work is done here. And that also might, if you kind of look behind the veil to some of the politics, it's at least my opinion that there are certainly five judges on that court who are not going to say that a president is is immune. They're just not going to ever do that. But they would probably still like to keep it at a bit of a distance, you know, not be the ones who actually had the oral arguments, issued the decision, you know, keep it a bit of a distance. And having the DC Circuit do it, that kind of allows them to get to where they want to go. But again, keep a little distance, just kind of look at it and say, yep, good to go. Sounds good to me. Right. And it would also help them like hide behind the procedural way that you're supposed to take up cases, right? I mean, even if the rule is, even if they think that the DC circuit wrongly decided the case, they're only supposed to intervene if they think there was some kind of egregious legal error. They don't necessarily have to have kind of interpreted the facts the same way. Um, so they can kind of hide behind that and, and say, you know, all due respect to the appellate courts, right? Like we're not stepping on them unless we have to, which of course we know is baloney. Like we know that they step on appellate courts all the time when they haven't gotten their their preferred outcome. But as you say, there is also some political incentive for them not to really want to kind of get in the mud for Trump this early when there's all this other stuff coming down the pike and, you know, they're doing the disqualification arguments tomorrow. We're recording this Wednesday. It'll be on Thursday. So they've just got their hands full with Trump stuff. I can see them not wanting to kind of go out on the limb yet on, on this kind of unserious of an argument. Or also on the converse, that they, that they don't want, if you're like John Roberts or uh, Brett Kavanaugh, you don't want to be against Trump. Yeah. You, you know, because, you know, you've already said, I mean, it's, it's, it's so comical, the, the, the world that, <laughs> the world that Republicans operate in now, you know, John Roberts might as well be uh, Judge Souter. Right. Yeah, right. Just another Democratic plant that George W. Bush was dumb enough to put on the Supreme Court, a total turncoat. So especially with like, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, who's, you know, like it might be like, I, I don't know how much uh, John Roberts, what he's in his, I guess he's in his late 60s now, something like that. I mean, he's the fucking Supreme Court justice of the, you know, chief justice of the United States. You would think at a certain level, he doesn't really care what people, you know, say what you want. I'll get up tomorrow and I'll still be chief justice. So like, you know, sucks to be you. But Brett Kavanaugh is, you know, he's a kind of a hail fellow, well met at the kegger <laughs> kind of guy. I, I think he, I think his social existence, if not in the Trump world, I don't think he's a Trumper per se, but in the Republican world. And since they're basically identical, he didn't want to be there. He wants to be friends, right? He, so I, I think it, there is with at least some of these folks, they may not it may be beyond what they can do to accept these ridiculous arguments from Trump, but they would really prefer someone else to kind of deliver the message, right? It's when like, it's when like, uh, you know, the boss wants to fire you, but he doesn't have the nerve. So he sends like <laughs> right. the deputy to fire you, right? That's kind of a, that's, that's Brett Kavanaugh here. But anyway, yeah. so that's kind and of I mean, we we'll are. see. I mean, uh, this is also a court that has a, 
endless potential to surprise. So we'll be keeping an eye on this in, in the next kind of few days. Um, but now for a sprinkling of just pure schadenfreude, we, we turn to the U.S. Congress where last night, Tuesday night, the big for months touted effort to impeach Secretary Mayorkas for something, something, something border, right? You know, like it's it's never really articulated. It's just he happens to be the one that's kind of in charge of immigration. And we know this is their big battering ram. So he has done, I guess, high crimes in terms of Something. Question mark. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I don't think they've really felt the need to articulate it all that much. Just kind of yelling border tends to be enough. So this has been touted since like the beginning of term that they were going to do this. They finally are starting to kind of put it on the floor to kick off the process. Also, I think, you know, this is happening as we'll get into while the border plan is just spectacularly kind of going up in flames. So I think this was also a little bit of a Okay, well, this is all sucked, right? So let's do like the fun stuff. Let's just take a little interlude to do something we all enjoy. The vote in an absolute humiliation for Mike Johnson fails on the floor. And this is because, I mean, we've been talking about for months how the Republican majority in the House is incredibly thin and always getting thinner. On this particular day, Steve Scalise was out because, you know, he is um, in cancer treatment. uh, So related to that, but... Democrats also had an absence. Um, Al Green, uh, the congressman from Texas, was going through medical things as well. All in all, Republicans thought that they had three votes to lose. And they knew that they were going to lose those three votes because two of those people had come out beforehand, including Ken Buck, like the most inscrutable member of Congress to me, I swear to God. But two of them had come out saying basically... Like, this is silly. And and we can't kind of make such a mockery of impeachment, right? Like, it's supposed to be a serious thing. And then Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, who had been stayed wishy-washy up until the vote, it was a no, which got him apparently screamed at by Marjorie Taylor Greene on the, on the House floor. So, you know, thoughts and prayers with him. But so anyway, they thought they could lose the three votes, right? They lose the three votes all of a sudden in an Aaron Sorkin twist who appears in the doorway. But Al Green in his like hospital garb, you know, comes in having had some kind of emergency abdominal surgery, had Ubered from the hospital in D.C. to make it just in time for the vote. And then it it dawns on Republicans and you can see it dawning on them that all of a sudden they don't have the votes anymore because they were counting on this absence. And Al Green had not been present for the kind of, you know, much lower level vote they had right before this. So they they thought they had it in the bag. And then, you know, he appears with like beams of light coming from behind him (laughs) to go vote. And then Johnson is leaving the vote open because they're trying to get someone to change their mind. You know, people are swarming this guy, Mike Gallagher, on the floor while he's like cross-armed, you know, just kind of shaking his head and they're all screaming at him and telling him to change the vote. And then they kind of concede defeat and they have a member of the leadership team, uh, you know, switch his yes vote to no so they can bring up the vote again at a later time. And Johnson just dead-faced gavels the vote to a close the failed impeachment vote and and then we all just drowned in the schadenfreude of it all and then people kind of caught johnson on the way out and were like 
are you going to bring this up again in the future? And he said, yes. And they were like, okay, sweet. How are you going to change the three votes on your side? Right. I mean, they either have to do that or get Scalise back. Um, you know, it's kind of a constant absences game or hope that the Democrats are missing someone, you know, those kind of numbers games. Um, well, but- the other, the, the other thing that, that comes up is that next Tuesday, you have this special election for George Santos's seat, New York three. And because it's a special election, that person's good to go the next day. There's no, you know, there's no transition period in special elections. So if the Republican candidate wins, point being, that could have a pretty big effect. And that's Tuesday. We're in practice Wednesday. And then Steve Scalise, I believe he's had a bone marrow transplant, which Mm -hmm. is the kind of, you know, one of the basic treatments you get for that kind of uh, illness. And, you know, it's sort of you know, if you don't want to be in Congress, don't be in Congress. But as much as Steve Scalise is not my favorite person, it is a bit rough to kind of be putting this on someone who's undergoing, you know, pretty intense treatment for a, a, a very ser- serious cancer to kind of, you know, force him back to the floor. I don't think it's he's just like a little tired. I think that, you know, these are serious things. So I don't know. Clearly, they couldn't. I am sure if they could have, they would have got him up there today. Clearly, they can't. But it does set up this pretty tight window where the Democrats may have another member of Congress by Wednesday. Uh, you know, which George Santos did like tweet, you know, a screenshot of the, the Miss tallies. me now, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to be. I think he is going to be. Uh, uh, George Santos will be tweeting aggressively until his iPhone is confiscated when Up he checks until the into very his, moment. Yep. Yes, when he when he is sentenced. So yeah, so that's where we are on well let me so my let me ask a couple more questions about this. So my understanding I mean obviously as we've said they have literally been saying they were going to do this from the from the very first day of the of the House GOP majority. And it was basically treated as you know, they want to impeach Joe Biden. They're going to try to impeach Joe Biden. But like, obviously, they're going to, you know, impeach this Mayorkas guy on day one. That that was like, for a long time, treated as just like a given. Like, of course, they're they're going to do it. Now, my understanding is that Marjorie Greene was sort of the, the one who kind of got everything kind of like ripped up to do this right now. Is that, is, is what, what, what drove it now? Yeah, I mean, she's also been kind of the impeachment queen- from day one, right? Like I think in 2020, she w- she filed the articles of impeachment against Biden like the day after his inauguration or whatever. Um, right. But yeah, and also this has been proceeding. This has been awkward lately because while the Senate group was doing the border deal, Mayorkas was like the main White House liaison during it. And by all accounts, the Republicans involved liked him and thought he was kind of a a good faith actor and was uh, helping kind of lubricate the wheels over there while you had the House Republicans, you know, calling for his head. So I think to some degree, it is a little bit like, as I said, things have been so bad for Republicans, let's have a bit of fun. But also any pressure being exerted on them that's like, well, don't don't go after Mayorkas right this second, right? Like we are working on a deal with him. Right. I mean, that's gone, right? I mean, the, the border deal is totally dead. There's like no 
favor to be done there at this point. So, I mean, I, I mean, if she had her druthers, I'm sure this would have come up a year ago, but you do need, uh, you know, the, in theory, you're supposed to kind of have enough votes before you go to the floor, which is something that House Republicans seem not to have uh, learned yet. But more of this scintillating content after these messages. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. It, it is. I, I will say, that, I mean, it, it's, like, it's like lawyers. You're never supposed to ask a question you don't know the answer to. And it's right. just kind of really basic that it, except in the now pretty rare cases where uh, either party doesn't decide to whip a vote, just says, hey, let's just vote and see where we come down and any, anything's fine, that you never bring something up unless you you know. And But what additionally, I mean, so that part right there is just totally insane. But what additionally is the case is it sounds like they knew they or they what they thought they knew was only having it by one vote. And having it by one vote, you don't know someone who's going to like, I don't know, have to go to the bathroom during the vote or, you know, that, that's so close that like you don't bring it up if it's if it's really down to one vote. So that is is um, is weird in itself. Before we leave this topic, I did a post on this uh, a short while ago about Mike Johnson. My sense is that none of this endangers Mike Johnson at all. This is all fine because the the kind of people who fire speakers just this is fine. Nothing's a problem here. So anybody thinking that like wow, this is such a embarrassment, maybe his days are numbered. I doubt that is from from your knowledge of the Hill being up there a lot. What's your sense? Is this a problem for him? Is this are his days numbered in some sense? I think it's impossible not to read this, this as embarrassing for him. It makes him look kind of naive and, and not good at the fundamentals of speakership. I think that's impossible to deny. And you have some House members saying that, like, we look like idiots, you know. <laughs> but who are the people who are most likely to kind of go for his head? You know, it's Marjorie Green, it's Matt Gates, it's kind of that sect of the party. And he did what they wanted. Like they yeah, were exactly. to bring impeachment to the floor. He brought it to the floor. He brought it to the floor without having the votes. God damn it. Like what more could he do to kind of be on their side of this? And from what I could see, Marjorie Green, I mean, obviously these folks can, they can come up with anything, right? They can blame Mike Johnson for not having the votes when everybody knew they didn't have the votes or they knew it was close. But it seemed like she was content with saying that They'd been double crossed by Al Green. 
Yeah, which is you hilarious. Didn't us, you didn't tell us you were going to come back from the hospital. That's not fair, right? So, <laughs> so it's it's not even. <laughs> she seemed happy to to blame the Democrats, which which obviously, if that's if 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 that's how it is, then that's great for Mike Johnson, right? And then Johnson also by kind of doing Trump's bidding in terms of killing the border deal probably preserved his lifespan a little bit more because then he didn't actually have to do the difficult work of trying to get the whole caucus to support it, which, you know, obviously is going to was always going to be even if this got through the Senate, even if it's this kind of hard right immigration bill like we've been talking about, it was always going to be hard to get through the House because the premise of it was you have the red meat stuff of immigration to get Ukraine funding through. And Marjorie Taylor Greene has also said that if Johnson ever tries to bring up Ukraine funding, she's going to do the motion to vacate and kind of go for his head. So by blowing up the border deal as well, he's avoided kind of putting himself in his crosshairs of of those people, again, who are the ones who are most likely to do it. So, I mean, does he look stupid? Yes. Is like all of Twitter kind of enjoying comparing him to Nancy Pelosi? For sure. But his longevity is directly connected to how mad at him these certain these like five hard right Republicans are. And at least in this sequence of events, he's pretty much acceded to everything they want him to do. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, if anything, I would, my sense is that it's not only that they don't mind that he can't really run the house, but in, in many ways, it actually, I think Trump likes having a Mike Johnson type figure because these kind of chaotic, difficult to plan ahead, difficult to kind of, you know, exert any organizing power over anything, just underlines the fact that the only person who has decisive power in the GOP is Donald Trump. He's the one who says what happens. And even the people who execute his desires don't even have any, you know, kind of juice. And that's that's good for them. Exactly. This is it's kind of the macro version of when Newt Gingrich came in in 94 and got rid of uh, term limits or put in term limits for the chairs of the big committee. Like, you know, all of that is just to kind of make sure there are no other power centers in the party except for him. This is this. It just feels newer because for a while, the speakership at least was still the power center. Like we saw all the power concentrated in congressional leadership, but at least it was still there. Now that power is kind of getting lifted from congressional leadership to Trump, who's not even in Congress. Or in the White House. Or in government in any way. (laughs) Right. Exactly. 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 Okay. What else? What else are we talking Um, about? So I guess we have a bit more to get to, but just to kind of put a bow on the border stuff where we are now, that as much as the bill was dead before, it's kind of deader now. um, Senate Republicans are kind of fully the ones who wanted it have like kind of given up on it. Everybody else is just trying to reframe it as like, this is some weak ass bill. Like (laughs) we can't do real border stuff without Trump, blah, blah, blah. So they're having that vote today, Wednesday, where it's going to fail. It'll be filibustered um, in the Senate. And then Schumer directly after it is going to bring up the like supplemental funding sans the border stuff. So the money they were going to give to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. It's a lot less clear how that's going to go, in part, I think, because there hasn't been a ton of time for Senate Republicans to kind of 
get on the same page about that because this bill has kind of fallen apart pretty quickly. Um, and, and, you, and you do have a lot of Senate Republicans who genuinely do want to pass uh, Ukraine aid. But I don't really know how much it matters anyway, because it's really hard for me to see a world where any Ukraine aid can pass through the House right now. I mean, it's not like you've got a ton of House Republicans who are really hostile to it, but you've got some. And enough. obviously, we're talking enough. about tiny yeah. margins, yeah. you know, yeah. and they yeah. tried to do this kind of slapdash Israel supplemental standalone, I think yesterday, which was on an expedited basis. So it would have needed two thirds vote, you know, feels very senatorial. And, and that didn't kind of come anywhere close to passing because the Democrats are are holding the line of we're not just giving you the thing you want and not doing the thing that we want. Right. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of the state of play now where it just I mean, almost everything seems dead or near dead or likely to die. Now, isn't tell me if this is the right sort of chain of events as, as I understood this, because I think this this point is significant that the bill comes out at least in theory, it has enough quasi-supporters to beat a filibuster. In pretty short order, everybody falls into line. A lot of people, a lot of Republican senators come out against it. Most, if not all, of the ones who were basically for it come out not against it exactly, but saying, too soon, I need, I'm going to need more time to process this and whatever. And then there was, as I understood it, basically like half a day when you know, even McConnell and the and the guy whose bill it is, James Langford, Jim Langford, said, "Okay, yeah, we're this we're, we're going to filibuster it when Schumer brings it up because we need more time." And then there was, you know, a dozen hours or so, less than twenty four hours, when the people around McConnell were saying, "We need to kind of dig into this and see whether the people asking for a delay, if there's really a window here where a little more time we can sort of." make this work or whether this delay is just to kill the bill and this thing is 100% done, dead, never going to be Lazarusized and brought back to life. And basically yesterday morning, McConnell said, yep, this thing is completely done. There's no, there's no little more time. We're going we're gonna to make this work. And I think that was always obvious because it clearly, clearly was not a matter of some of these Republican senators looked at it and said, ah, this isn't quite as hard line as I need. It was Trump. Trump said no. And it really, you could you could just pass a bill that required you to execute everybody who tried to cr cross the border. And it still wouldn't work for Trump because Trump's interests here are to keep it what they see as bad and is you know, bad to the extent that you you have a system that isn't working, even if you would just like to say, hey, we're just we're just gonna take a lot more immigrants, whatever. You get the idea. That's not gonna change. So that was kind of obvious. And then they came back to, okay, oh yeah, we're just going to ditch the immigration stuff and just do the kind of the aid for all the endangered countries we like. You know, little for you, Ukraine, little for you, Israel, little for you, Taiwan, which is ironic because the whole way we got here in the first place was Senate Republicans saying, we're not going to do this aid stuff unless you allow us to pass a kind of a draconian immigration bill. Democrats said, okay, fine. Let's do the draconian immigration bill. Did the draconian immigration bill? Republicans said no. Now, your point just now was we don't, this has all happened so quickly that we're not totally clear on what's going to happen with that kind of aid only slimmed down version. Now, 
it occurs to me that possibly one of the dynamics is whatever they're saying in public, a number of Republicans who actually invested a lot of time trying to negotiate this thing are kind of fucking pissed at how this all went down and how, you know, the sort of the the crazy of the House invaded the Senate and sort of house-eyes the Senate for a day and made all that go away. So I kind of think that as long as Trump isn't paying a lot of attention yet, is still kind of in a stupor over the last win, that some of them might say, you know what, Mike Johnson, we're going to send this over to you. And like, is it a problem for you? Well, fuck you. So I, I wonder if that is playing some role here. Yeah. I mean, and you can totally see it in like the, you know, the Romneys, the Tillises, the people who have been I mean, the Langfords to some extent, but the people have been candid about the dynamics going on. Like, you know, the ones who still take enough pride in being a U.S. senator, that this idea that Trump kind of came in and slapped him around doesn't sit right. Like, there are still a good number of those in the Senate. But I mean, it's all going to be numbers, right? It's like, are there 10 of those off the top of my head? I don't know. You know, I, I think... And it, it all depends on what McConnell does, because I think he genuinely desperately wants Ukraine aid. Like, I think he really considers it. He wants it to be part of his legacy type thing. No, I, I, I definitely think it. I mean, even I 100% think it's become a legacy issue for him, because obviously the end of his political career is sort of, you know, right there on the horizon. Right. Everybody kind of knows that that is uh, coming for him. And the other thing is, you know, the, the whole... The whole Ukraine thing has, we know all the different ways it has been politicized. I think it is accurately politicized in the sense of on the global stage now, we have sort of team authoritarian and team civic democracy. And this is a battle that is really about that global struggle. And clearly, a lot of Republicans, well, the dominant part of the Republican Party is, it's not even that they disagree with the analysis, they're just on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, screw the woke civic democracy people. But there are still a lot of Republicans who they may not see it through that, I don't know whether you want to, you know, to me, it's not some sort of like airy fairy, like high points of principle. That's the reality of the world that we're living in. But even if they don't see it that way, it is in their uh, genetic political makeup. You want to punish Russia, Russia slash Soviet Union. That's the sort of the, you know, kind of peer rival of the United States. So if we can, if we can make things harder for Russia, you do it because they are kind of a basic, uh, a basic adversary of the United States. So there are a number of Republicans who really may not see this in the way that Democrats see it, but really do want to do this. And I do think that's where McConnell is. You don't carry water for Russia. And, mm-hmm. and that that's just kind of foundational for them, even, even after everything that has happened um, in, in politics in the US over the last, you know, over, over the last seven or eight years. So that'll be curious. You know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Pretty, totally. pretty short order. So uh, let's scoot over to today at the Florida Supreme Court. Um, this ballot initiative that, 
you know, we've seen these a lot since Dobbs, right? Kind of the most notable recent one was in Ohio where it passed. Florida's trying to do the same thing, enshrine abortion rights so that the legislature can't interfere um, up to viability. Now, as we've also seen in Ohio and these other red states, Republican officials use every kind of procedural step in the process to try to kill the ballot initiative before it even gets before voters. So the AG in Florida asked the Florida Supreme Court to basically do these like preliminary checks on on the summary of the proposed amendment, which is you need to see does it only cover one subject or is it multiple subjects? Is it deceptive? Like that kind of language parsing. Um, Now, the Florida Supreme Court is like stacked with DeSantis appointees and every single person on it was appointed by a Republican governor. So it's pretty right wing, you know, like, for example, one of the judges is married to the woman um, who co-sponsored the six week ban in Florida and declined to recuse himself. So Apparently, there were reports that the chief justice of the court gave a private tour of the courtroom to anti-abortion activists who wanted to see the place where abortion would die in Florida. So these are the people we're dealing with, like just pretty bald partisans. And that came through because said chief justice kept bringing up this question that clearly neither lawyer was at all prepared for, where he was saying, you know, they have the kind of 14th amendment piece of the Florida state constitution, which is, you know, all people get, you know, life, liberty, that version of the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. 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 And he said, well, you know, it seems really unclear to me whether quote unquote unborn children qualify under this part of the constitution, which is fetal personhood, you know, a state version of fetal personhood, because the kind of, Uh, The way it's usually understood is that anti-abortion activists push this argument that embryos and fetuses are people and entitled to the full gamut of, you know, legal rights and protections that a normal person has, which obviously you get before they're aborted, basically. Yeah, Yeah. Which includes, you know, the right to life. So all abortion would be murder. So he's basically pushing for a state version of fetal personhood, um, which is this like you know, it's a radical anti-abortion kind of idea. And also they're supposed to be there to talk about whether like the title of the amendment adequately describes what it's talking about. And he's like, well, with fetal personhood, you know, which might indicate that kind of down the road, if the Supreme Court wants to kill this in Florida, maybe that's how they do it. I mean, it would be nuts, right? Because he keeps floating this idea where he's like, well, I'm not clear about this. And it's like, well, it's fairly clear per how Florida is operating right now. You know, Florida currently has a 15 week abortion ban and the six week one has been, you know, enjoined in the courts. But if Florida was operating under a a fetal personhood regime right now, you know, there wouldn't be any gestational bans because there would be no abortion at all ever because it would be murder. Right. So, Yeah, pretty clear that this particular Supreme Court is going to be as hostile as possible to this amendment. And kind of on top of that, there's already just higher standards. Florida voters okayed in 2006 a proposal to up the threshold of ballot initiatives from both the legislature and the citizens to 60 percent, which, you know, voters will remember voters, listeners will remember. I mean, that would have kind of killed most of these abortion initiatives, you know, 
in red states we've seen so far. In Ohio, it, you know, it was a, a kind of big success and it was 57%, right? Like getting a super majority threshold is difficult, especially on something like this. But there was a poll from the fall showing that 62% of people backed it. So, you know, and the proponents of it are keep saying, you know, we're going to be able to hit the 60% threshold. Um, and we have seen, you know, I think the other initiatives that have succeeded so far might have kind of gotten the ball rolling in terms of now people kind of know what these are. They're they're more aware of it. They're more aware of the idea that in a state like Florida, where Republicans control, I mean, just every single lever of of power, that this is kind of the only means to get any abortion rights going there. But you know, it's always an uphill battle in these things. It's an uphill battle whenever you try to do a ballot initiative in a, you know, in a single party state, basically, because then you're, you're fighting the refs as well. Um, So that's kind of the situation in Florida right now. Now, this hearing, this was all all that was being discussed here. It wasn't whether this ballot initiative could happen. It was about the language that you will see on the ballot and how the and how the initiative will be described. And we had a version of this uh, in Ohio, exactly. where the Ohio, I don't even, I, I guess it was the, was it the Secretary of State was the, was the person who was the, trying to substitute right. diff, and the, you know, the, kind of pro-life the, language rather than the yep. text of the amendment itself. Now, in Florida, it sounds like in Ohio, this puts something, if I'm remembering this right, uh, and I believe also in Michigan, it puts something into the Constitution. Mm-hmm. It put language into the Constitution. Now, it sounds like in Florida, that's not the case because if you're if you're adding something into the Constitution, then the the current text of the Constitution doesn't matter because you're amending the Constitution. So it sounds like this is a, a statute that would be inferior to the Constitution? Am I right about that? No, it, it would be an amendment. Oh, it would. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how, I mean, I, I, I guess this guy is, is, you know, kind of so used to going rogue, maybe it doesn't matter. But am I missing something there? Because if to the extent that, let's say for the sake of a conversation that he's right, that the current Florida Constitution, notwithstanding that no one realized it until now, actually forbids abortion that if you add new text that says abortion is legal it's that is like when we you know overturn the 18th amendment we're changing it doesn't matter what it said before exactly basically he was trying to stake his argument on this is this is one of the arguments that the ag slash the group kind of formed to oppose the initiative brought that they should somehow have to explain in like the very limited word count you're given to put this on the ballot, how this change would affect other things, whether that be kind of laws or the constitution. So I think he, well, he's clearly just trying to shoehorn this opinion in. And I think kind of send a signal to the AG that like, you guys should be arguing this, but you know the, the kind of, quote unquote premise of his question is like, should you have to explain how this interplays with the other part of the Constitution and how this would affect that clause that, you know, imbues embryos with like full human right kind of thing, which interestingly, the the judge I mentioned, he was married to the legislator who did the six, six week ban. He was by far the most hostile to the AG and the anti-abortion mm-hmm. people the whole time, like clearly trying to do a little John Robertson. Yeah, I'm an umpire. I call balls and strikes type thing. Um, and he, you know, he said he was like, how in the world do you want them to explain 
all the knock-on effects of this constitutional amendment when we don't know what most of them will be yet. And, and he's right. I mean, this idea that you amend the constitution with this, which is with this amendment, which is obviously clear and like straightforward. And then of course there'll be litigation right now. You're going to have the Florida legislature spending every day of their life. If it passes, trying to find ways to hem in abortion that the courts will let them get away with given this amendment, you know, it's crazy to ask the group to kind of sketch that out in the whatever, like a hundred words you're permitted. But anyway, I think that that was kind of the his entry point to, to spewing his uh, his kind of clear anti-abortion uh, radicalism into the arguments. Interesting, because I guess when I was when I was reading your article, I guess the what they are at least making a nod to is that you shouldn't be able to have a ballot initiative that actually does 10 different things on the sly, mm-hmm. that it has to be one thing, you describe that one thing, you know, in and out, done, on to the next ballot initiative, and that they are trying to shoehorn this into a kind of Ouija board provision that you need to know what's going to happen 25 years from now when you do this, which is obviously a absurd if you just right. i mean i looked at the language and the language is just a a slightly wordier version of we're not going to outlaw abortions before viability end of story and that's pretty straightforward right even though the attorney general's probably primary argument is that the term viability is too vague and nobody knows what that means so voters are going to be confused and it's just like I mean, you don't have to come up with serious arguments when you've got such a stack deck like they do. But it's just that's just so beyond silly. Like people know what viability means in an abortion context. And what else do you want people to do? Like you can't ask them to kind of put a specific weak on it. And this is something that has honestly like bedeviled the abortion rights side for years on this topic, because there is some amount of like idiosyncrasy with pregnancy right and and people and also have technology it. changes exactly That's, that is a, that is a, a basic thing i mean not to go you know uh, uh deep down this rabbit hole but it's it is absolutely true that that uh there are premature births today where the newborn can not only survive but be you know kind of have a healthy life that 50 years ago no way that child was gonna was was going to die at birth. So at least there's um, viability, even though there is some wiggliness to it, is a more meaningful, both ethical and scientific term than trimesters, since that's just trimesters kind of is just up. yeah, it's just something something about the fact that we use a a you know the Romans decided that we use a solar rather than a lunar calendar and we're dividing it up into three kind of thing. It, exactly. it, it has no real meaning. So anyway, okay, and then so the, that's Florida. Which is yeah. funny because just to finish, the AG's other main argument is that voters might be so confused by the placement of a comma that is part of the sentence of saying viability you know, the government, basically the text is the no law shall like prohibit, deny, restrict abortion up to the point of viability or when it's to serve the health of the patient, you know, as determined by a healthcare provider. That's basically the whole thing. And they're like, well, are people going to know that the viability is also being determined by a healthcare provider in this context? Like that might absolutely shock them. And it's like, viability has always been determined by healthcare. 
by healthcare providers. Like they're trying to make this argument that people are going to be shocked and offended that it's not legislators deciding viability, which to begin with, okay. I mean, I, I think if you talk to these people, they'll be a little more comfortable having their doctors determine this than like the, the very gerrymandered legislature in Florida. But even besides that, that's just a, a conflation of kind of gestational bans and viability. Like you, red states have always wanted to ban abortion at certain points, but they've never made the argument that like our new viability is, you know, six weeks or whatever, and you can only ban it up till six weeks. Like those are different contexts or different, those are different concepts that they're just trying to kind of mix to make it confusing. But again, I mean, this is the strength of argument you need when you've got seven judges who are all Republican appointees. Well, it is, it is vaguely reminiscent of what you see today in the federal Supreme Court with what you might call, you know, the chin scratching doctrine, where they'll look at some legislative history or look at some language and just say, who, who can say? Exactly. Who is to really say? This is too unclear. And so the only fair decision is for us to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's kind of that, 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 and it, and at the Supreme court, it's just that this is what you do. If you have six justices, you just kind of come up with nonsensical things. And as you say in Florida, when everybody's a Republican, who's gonna, you know, it's, everything's cool. Yeah. I mean, and I, I don't want to end on a dour note because in, you know, in Ohio, they had to fight through a lot of the same stuff. They obviously still got it to the ballot. They triumphed. I mean, that was a huge, huge win in Ohio. It's the only way that they could have preserved abortion rights. Um, You know, it's 2024. It's going to be a presidential election year. I think we can both feel very confident that Republicans will do everything they can. You know, the Republicans on the bench and in the legislature and, you know, in the governor's mansion to kind of kill this before it gets into voters' hands. But these groups are getting more experienced with this kind of stuff. And then they've seen these tactics before. So, um, you know, either way, I mean, you've got to you got to pull for them, right? Especially in a place like Florida, which is just turning into like the kind of laboratory for authoritarianism in this country. I guess duking it out with Texas to see to see who can be worse. Um, so, you know, we'll, well be tracking also, this one. It's also true that there there are certain things about the peculiarities of Florida that it, uh, you know, I, I think it's still a bit up for debate how red a state it is. It's definitely a red state. I assume it's going to, I assume Trump is going to win it. Um, how much, how reliable that is. But, but there's something about um, Florida Republicanism that it's less clear. You've got a lot of libertarianism in Florida, which is sort of like, you know, don't show my kids any books about trans people, but obviously, I, if I need an abortion, what the hell? You're going to tell me I can't? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's and with it, you know, you see it in a lot of headway Republicans have made in South Florida. I mean, this is Roger Stone territory. You need access to you know reproductive health when you're when you roll like those guys do. In any case, you get the idea. There's there's a there is it's an increasingly Republican state, but it is also one that is in a lot of ways more libertarian republicanism than sort of evangelical republicanism or at least where there's a lot of that libertarian stuff that makes it a little less straightforward how you know abortion politics is 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 going to play and in all of these states it's the same factors right like there's not going to be good polling of it probably we're not going to have a lot of polls of it um 
in a state like Florida, though, I mean, especially when it is to some degree still a battleground state and in terms of the Senate, I mean, it's sad, but it's kind of one of the only two pickups that that the kind of Democratic organs are even willing to identify, um, you know, because Rick Scott's up there. You also know that this effort is probably going to get a boost by by those electoral interests. Right. So you can kind of count on you can count on this Republican interference and you can count on the fact that I think there's going to be a lot of money involved in this. There's going to be a lot of interest in making sure that Florida voters know about this, that you get people to come out to the to the polls to vote for this issue. And then, you know, kind of hopefully like also also Biden and, and against Rick Scott and whatnot. So, you know, it's going to be a big one, a big banner issue, a big election night issue, um, you know, if it's allowed to get there before the the court kills it. Right. All right. So what are, what's the, the final thing we're going to Oh, yeah. So just last about. little housekeeping note is um, tomorrow, Thursday morning at 10 uh, a.m. Eastern, the Supreme Court will be doing arguments over the disqualification case, you know, the, the effort to get Trump tossed from the ballot because of his uh, actions on January 6th. So that's going to be a big one. We're going to be covering it. We're going to have a live blog um, as well as kind of uh, standalone pieces after arguments are wrapped. So if you're interested in that and kind of want to follow along, um, that's that's 10 a.m. on Thursday. We'll be covering that. And that's actually it's it's I think that this these oral, oral arguments will be in some ways uh, more interesting or at least have more possible surprises to the extent you can ever really infer anything from oral arguments because it's not totally clear where the different players, to to me at least, where the different players are going to come down on this. Uh, I think given the, the, I'm pretty sure I know where most of the Republican appointees are going to come down. But to me, it's not a given at all that the Democratic appointees are going to be like, yep, toss the dude. He's he's toast. It's this is this is open and shut. It's not open and shut. Or at least um I think most legal scholars don't think it's open and shut. They're actually pretty good arguments, I think, um, on both sides. So so it's kind of one of these things where it's not like going into a you know, an abortion case or even some Trump cases where you say, all right, we're going to see, you know, the flavors of the predictable position that everybody's going to have here. I mean, do we know where uh, Kagan is on this issue? Not to me. I have no idea. There's also what makes this interesting, I think, is a lot of off ramps, like a lot of ways for them to say he's not disqualified, that are very different, you know, they, cause they could kind of hew to the more hyper textualist cutting away all context thing of like a president doesn't count as an officer. So the president can't be uh, disqualified, which, you know, if you only read the text, maybe you can buy that. Of course, that would require you to cut away the context of the people at the time were not saying like, oh, Jeff Davis, like if you want to be if you want to <laughs> be president, that's fine. But like everybody else, you're done. Right. It's just the foot soldiers. You get disqualified like that. That makes no sense. I think that's why a lot of people I've talked to about this say it's pretty open and shut in terms of Trump is disqualified. But the political considerations are so weighty that that 
you can see that kind of getting in the way. But you could have that kind of thing. You could have the Congress needs to pass an enforcement legislate an enforcement mechanism. You know, they could kind of stay in that hyper procedural away from the details of the case thing. Or, you know, they could go more MAGA and be like, January 6th wasn't an insurrection. You know, it has to be a civil war or nothing rises to that level. Um Or they could do what they're not supposed to do and kind of redo the lower court work and be like, Trump didn't engage in the insurrection. You know, his comments didn't didn't rise to the level of his participation. And so, you know, there are so many routes that this one could take that it's going to be interesting to watch. And it might give us a little bit of a sense of how they're going to approach these other, you know, the immunity thing if it gets to them or, or these other kind of Trump entanglements in terms of how willing they are to get into the meat of kind of Trump's direct participation or if they tr- prefer to stay in the land of like abstraction and how this applies to, you know, general presidents ever kind of thing. Right, 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 right. Okay, well, that's tomorrow. Uh, you said starts at 10 a.m. Yep. We're going to have a live blog, so we're going to be covering like, you know, every uh, moment of it. Uh, so definitely tune in for that. And I think that's all we have for today. Another, another right. good quality episode yep. uh, in, the, in the can. So I guess we'll see you next week. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader